Hello, and welcome to the Librarian is in the New York Public Library podcast about books, culture, and what to read next. I'm Crystal. And I'm Frank. Hello, it's a new. Yeah, I'm. We got to We got to meet in person, actually. But um, because I'm echoey, I think I'm not sitting close to a sound muffler, so I'll have to be a little stentorian. <laughs> That's a word for you, stentorian. How are you, hon? I'm all right. I am visiting family in Texas, as I typically do every twice a year, three times a year, one time a year, sometimes. I feel like you're you're in Texas half the time we talk. Yeah. (laughs) Well, this is good of you. It's very sweet. Yeah. Familial loyalty. I mean, it's also uh, the weather is much nicer here now than it is in the summer where it's like a hundred plus degrees and kind of terrifying. Really? Yeah. It's a hundred degrees there right now? No, no, not right now in the summer when I go. Oh, oh I was like, geez, Texas is different than the rest of us. <laughs> Incendiary. So we haven't seen each other in a while. Or talked since last year. How was your holiday break? Holidays um, over. (laughs) I don't, uh, I didn't do anything. It's just uh, my usual, which I love, being sort of like alone in the city when everyone else is gone. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And sort of love the city feel at that time. Mm -hmm. And just putter about. Um, you know, watch a movie, read a book, have mm. a movie. What yeah. movies? Oh, I saw it. Well, that's funny you should say. Actually, I'm going to uh, talk about a movie or at least a review of one. Um, I, well, I said... <laughs> God, I could. I feel. I mean, you know, I feel like I haven't talked to you so long. I feel like I could talk for hours, which I normally do, and I don't want to be the dominator. This <laughs> forty <laughs> that I can't talk. But um, I, to be honest, I saw a great Italian movie from the seventies called "The House with Laughing Windows." Oh. It's a giallo. Have you heard of those giallo? Oh. They're Italian. Oh. Giallo means yellow in Italian, and it's like the lurid sort of. Uh, paperbacks were yellow covered in that period. And the movies that sort of came out of that are called giallo because they're sort of like these lurid, very colorful, very extreme sort of mystery thrillers, sometimes really horror, like full on, but there's a range of them. So they're very moody, very violent sometimes Mm and very, um, political sometimes is the subtext of like post-war Italy fascism and or Catholicism is sometimes like imagery in the these movies but they're sort of like these supposedly on the surface very straightforward um well not straightforward but very sort of on the surface a mystery of someone's death or a mystery of some sort of crime Mm-hmm. But they're very, very beautiful in a way. They're 70s, and the, the set design is usually very intense and and unique. I mean, I sort of, I realized I'm sort of creating a room in the library that sort of <laughs> mimics these things. It's like, it usually has very ornate, like this interesting ornate slash old-fashioned wallpaper mm-hmm. of very vivid colors, lots of gilt frames and shadows and... I don't know. I feel like I'm creating a room in a, a giallo room. But anyway, I saw that movie and it stuck with me. It's very strange. It's very, very strange. It it spends the whole movie being um, uh, like a very straightforward mystery thriller and then has this kapoopy ending that's sort of like, what? But um, House of Laughing Windows. But like some of my favorite movies, like Dario Argento, who did Suspiria, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then... Luca Guadagnino, whatever his, however you say his name, who did Call Me By Your Name, remade that. But the original from the 70s is, <laughs> it's mind-blowing. And it's it's pretty hardcore, so I would be careful of foreseeing it. Anyway, I saw that movie over the holiday. 
I mean, hearing you talk about this, and I kind of looked it up as well, the house with laughing windows and the Jallo films. Yeah. Have you seen um, White Lotus? No, but I've heard so much about it. I watched that over the holidays. I watched that in like succession and like some other random stuff. But um, the second season of it takes place in Italy. And I'm reading about the Jallo films and the use of like thriller and horror. And I wonder if maybe they were inspired by some aspects. Because every season, I think there's a little bit of a mystery. Um, And then in the the second season, Italy, there were moments, I mean, that one, like the first season is about money. The second one is about sex. And in the second season, there were all of these scenes where they were kind of like zooming in into these art pieces that were on the walls or on the facades mm. of buildings. And there was definitely like this kind of creepy horror aspect to it, even though there there weren't really horror elements in it. And the ending was also kind of weird. I'm just kind of wondering where maybe the director and producers were pulling their, or writers were pulling their influences from, and maybe is this as well. So that's kind of interesting. I want to- I mean, I think, you know, like Luca Guadagnino remaking Suspiria from the 70s, Dario Gento's Suspiria, like those films are very influential in terms of aesthetic and Mm -hmm. uh, to filmmakers today, for sure. They're so unique and they're so Italian. I remember seeing very, very truncated versions on late night TV when I was a kid, like very, you know, edited, but like two in the morning and they just freaked me out. They, they sort of, they sort of, at least as it shot in a child's eyes, they, they pushed the boundaries of, of, you know, established belief in a way that made me feel and believe in karma and that, you know, you can't really go that far because you might get in trouble by some entity that's, you know what I mean? Like not growing up religious, but feeling that sort of like, well, you can't transgress that way. Um, They just seem transgressive, I guess is what I'm saying. And house of laughing windows as an adult watching this giallo, it's like, so many unanswered questions. Mm-hmm. And when you're a kid, you feel like you just don't know the answers because you're a kid. Um, and you feel like the uh, when you're an adult, you'll you'll know the answers. An adult know the answers. Now watching it, it's like they're designed in a way to be super mysterious. And there was a period where that would have bothered me because I want to know what the filmmaker's mm-hmm. overall vision mm-hmm. is. Now I realize they just sometimes go emotionally with like a mise-en-scene or like a, the set design or some some moment between characters that in a way might not make in quote sense, but yet in an emotional sort of way, it, it infuses your viewing of it quite pleasurably actually. Okay. And you can make sense of it as you will in some ways. You can sort of string ideas together. I mean, but I don't think always the filmmakers had a concrete s- sense of sense when they were doing of meaning. They were, creating an atmosphere that was revolutionarily different from anything that come before, you know, just this feeling of dread or mystery or supernatural sometimes, I mean, or just unexplained mm-hmm. until usually, I mean, and very, it does have a fasci- post-fascistic feel that Italy inherited of in terms of the violence and the guilt over it. Okay. Um, there's sort of a national guilt feeling over what happened. Um, and then the Catholicism coming into it, which is Italy is a very Catholic country about um, the repression of certain things. It's just so interesting. I don't know. So that's what I did over Christmas. <laughs> no, I, I mean, that's interesting to hear. I do tend to like things that are a little bit more open to interpretation. So I feel like I would like this other than the scary aspects. <laughs> but maybe well, they are scary, that. I think. They're, they're not. Oh. They are. No, they, oh, they are. are. They are scary. Okay. Even this 1970s one, The House of Flapping Windows, was not um, very graphic like Suspiria is, certainly is really? over-the-top graphic. Um, it ha- I still think of some certain shots and certain moments that are just like, ooh, you know, it's certain. I mean, there, well, there is, there is a, there, it opens very violently, actually, but then it stops for, for a while and becomes this mystery thriller, but there are some shots that are just so creepy. I hate that word. Really? I want to figure out a better word. What's better than creepy? So profoundly dreadful. Um, yeah. 
sort of, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm looking it up, and all the reviews are talking about how disturbing it is. <laughs> yeah. See, I love how you're researching me. Researching in real life. (laughs) (laughs) I know you want to, I think you're going to talk about best of. Mm, Kind of loosely. It's very right of you, and someone's got to be among the two of us. Also, like, how how do we condense a whole year into. Right. And I hate that. I hate the narrative. I I mean, I appreciate the library for making lists. I mean, it's sort of what I was thinking about, and what I'm probably maybe talk about is like just the imperative to label or to make lists or to organize or to um, put meaning onto something, I guess. So it's a shorthand for human experience. And I, you know, I'm always tussling with like, is that a real thing? Or is that something that that's something that's part of our human nature, which probably is in some ways to organize, make sense of the world. I and mean, we have to make sense of it to conquer it or get resources and achieve. Um, but I've been sort of like fakakta, fakklamps, reading the last month or so. I'm I'm reading um an 800 page Victorian novel. I'll talk about when I finish. I'm halfway through. Okay. Um, and are, it, are you taking guesses as to what that novel is? <laughs> are you curious? What do you think? I think listeners should guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. You can give one clue and only one. Well, I could get, all right, that's a cute idea. I, I mean, I'm, I will talk about it because I'm reading it, but I have to say, which sort of relates, um, it brought up profound issues for me of trust. And I, uh, mm-hmm. because I wasn't trusting the author because I've heard, and it's not Dickens, but I've heard, I've heard, um, which I hate knowing anything before I read a book, but that, you know, these Victorian novels were sometimes in serial form, like in in magazines, like over a series of a long time. So the 800 pages were like, you know, short chapters, month, week by week, whatever Mm -hmm. the publishing history was of those periodicals. And, you know, that this author was paid by the word. So sometimes it gets very so-called verbose in that it starts off a paragraph with a concept and then ends the same concept, but you're going through all these other words. And, and I would, I, always want to take at face value the art that I'm given. But with that in mind, I felt like, I don't know if I trust this author. And I, and I realized I have such trust issues. I mean, everything is personal in a way. I mean, I realize I want to embark on a reading journey because reading is so important to me and feel like I trust the author to take me there. And so I had to struggle and I really was struggling with trust issues about this book, like whether I could commit to it or not. Mm. Like I can't commit to you because you're writing, you're getting paid by the word. So I don't know if I trust that it's mercenary. It's not art. Do you think they like extend certain, like the potential to extend certain scenes just based on the money aspect rather than what the story actually needs? Didn't we talk about this before about like, didn't Dickens have different endings for one of his books because of the response of Mm -hmm. his audience? Exactly. So it's also like, um, well, like you were talking before about um, your cat being Pablo and you went from Picasso to Casal because Picasso has some bad history and possibly Pablo Neruda as well. And then it's sort of like what you know and what you don't know. So like if I didn't know that ingredient, which I didn't really pursue, like paid by the word, would, would I have trusted him more? And would it have been a false trust? I mean, you know, so the question is like, what is trust? And then, you know, how do you engender it? How do you base it. I guess it's just like a, I mean, it's the human need, I think, to trust, but it, you know, everyone has different variations on how they get there. I mean, so I was all floofy with that experience and then a little all over the place as usual, probably my resolution should be to come in coherently and say, here's the book I read. Here's what it's about. Here's what I thought. You do resolutions. Ain't going to happen. None now. I wouldn't dream of doing same. I will say I do one resolution and this is a resolution that I stole from um, Chelsea and that resolution is just to floss every day. <laughs> and that's the only one I can actually keep up with because all the other resolutions. What does Sarah there. Silverman say? <laughs> Death comes through the gums. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, flossing is a good idea. 
but everything else I've always failed at my resolutions. Well, I think it's a good one. I mean, I do that every day, which I can't believe. I had to lose a tooth once because I got a crown, but no, I was many crowns. Hmm? What you were saying too about the, yeah. what I was saying about my cat oh. Pablo, about how I had originally named at him after Pablo Neruda, a little bit of Pablo Picasso, and then of course all the Neruda stories coming about about how he was kind of a terrible person. You know, I just saw him as this poet who clearly loved his partner. You saw it in his poetry, and then to like know all this stuff later, um, and then I was like, okay, so now my cat is going to be named after Pablo Casals, who's like a famous. Uh, a music player, um, but you pointed out that you just we just don't know what that person's history is too. So the unknown is like almost more trustworthy than what we do know. And I think that's also really interesting because who's to say like all these other books that we read and authors from the Victorian era and prior, like the kinds of motivations they've had to write their own books. And yet we right. still, maybe we have this kind of unspoken trust of them because we don't know versus we know more about Dickens's history and then your author, right? And sometimes things we'll never know, and then some things we'll have, you'll find a trove of letters and you'll find out something else. But that's a great, as psychic, crystal psychic, <laughs> arrow card reader lady, who, which sort of relates exactly to what I was finally gonna talk about, because like I said, I was reading all over the place. And then I read this review in the New York Review of Books of the movie Tar. Oh, I've heard of Kate that and the review was written by Zadie Smith. Oh, yes. Who I love. And she, I talk about trust. She's one of the authors that when they come up, when I see an article written by her, she writes a lot of nonfiction. She writes fiction. She wrote White Teeth. She wrote um, Swing Time. And I always feel an impulse to check in on what she's having to say because I trust her for some reason. Mm -hmm. And I, again, I don't really know why. I think it's just the words that I've, re I've read from her appeal to me or take hold of me or make sense to me. Maybe I apprehend her more, more than I do some other authors. So when I saw the review in the New York Review of Books by Zadie Smith of the movie Tar, I was like, I have to read it. So I did read it and I did have a moment of like, oh, whoa, that I, that made me want to discuss it with you. And Tar, interestingly, with your Pablo's, is about Kate Blanchett plays a, I have not seen it, but I'm actually, I was thinking of seeing it tonight. Mm -hmm. We just got the DVD in the library. And- um, So you snatched it, all I right. Snatched it. Um, so Kate Blanchett plays a world famous conductor and a 50 something conductor who is like, you know, considered, and they discussed this a bit in the review, an art monster, which we also were talking about before we went mm -hmm. on about, you know, someone who is like to the nth degree into their expression, art expression and the appreciation of, and the, that's really all that matters. So like what you were saying in some ways about the Pablos and how you have to change the name because the revelations have come about their not so great behavior. Mm -hmm. There is an attitude that makes her an art monster in that the character in that she looks at the art as the arts and the person is a separate entity. Like you can separate the two. I so said, I'm getting it if I'm getting this right. Meaning, and she, the whole story of Tar from what I get from this review is, is her butting heads with a younger generation in their twenties. So 30 years younger than her. And this 20 something generation will say to her, let's for example, like I, I don't really, I'm not really into Bach. Mm -hmm. And she'll be like, you're insane. Bach is beautiful. Bach is amazing. And then the, 20 something will say, well, Bach was abusive to his wife or something. I think that was the point. And so I can't really listen to his music. And so from her point of view, the 50 something Kate Blanchett tar is like, that's absurd. Mm -hmm. um, and you're, you know, get your, your out of your hoo. So, and so the review, which caught, what caught me is that Zadie Smith, who, like I said, I went in with trust and still do. The whole article, and you know I've been sort of thinking about this lately because we've mm -hmm. talked about that outside, um, is she gener She talks about it genera generationally. Because yeah. Zadie Smith says she's a, the same, around the same age as Kate Blanchett in this movie, 50-something, which mm -hmm. I guess I am too. <clears throat> um, so she calls that Gen X, and she calls mm -hmm. the 20-somethings the Gen Z. Yeah. And I think I mentioned this before, because like I say, I always do, but 
I've always been annoyed by the gen, the generational labeling because um, when I was like nine or eight, and this is why we started the whole conversation with about do we have a human need to categorize, organize, label things so we can understand them and get through life, you know, successfully. But so I was interested as a young, young under 10 person reading this article in the newspaper about generational labels, you know, in the seventies. And when it got to, it said like, you know, 19, whatever, like the people born in the thirties were the greatest generation. I mean, a lot of these labels came later. I don't know what they called them then, but they did say the boomers, the baby boomers, the big boomers. So that's post 1945, post war. And because I was like nine, um, my, what they labeled my generation, um, because I was baby bust. So there was baby boom, there was a huge boom in babies and I was part of the decline of babies and they called it baby bust. And I remember being very disappointed because it was just a throw off. And I, I, and I, as I got older, I realized I wasn't a marketable generation yet. I wasn't a marketable age. So they had no investment in labeling my generation because there was nothing to create marketing needs for. So I always looked at these names as, as marketing, like, oh, you're like, and like I said, like we said before, oh, you're a boomer. So you're X, Y, and Z. You have all these personality traits. Now we can market to you. You're going to believe that you have these personality traits and you're going to believe that what we sell you. And then same for all the generations that came after. So I never thought of myself as a generation because I was called the baby bust. But of course, as I got older, when people started, especially now, it's like we talk generationally all the time. Um, I became Gen X mm-hmm. and I, or at one point, original X. And now as I get older and older and older and really old, I'm being pushed into boomer. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that how that works? I thought you would just stay Gen. Uh-uh. No, I've been looking at this for years. And it's like, I literally once saw like my birth date, like considered boomer. And of course, when I was a child, it was considered a bust. So what's true. That's why it seems like a made up thing, obviously. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and so I was like, I'm not a, but of course I was like, I'm not a boomer. Because <laughs> I was uh, like, I'm not buying these labels. And on the other hand, I'm rejecting what? Oh, I said boomer is a state of mind. I think <laughs> you can be. Oh, so- <laughs> And then I was like, so in this article about the movie Tar, you know, she calls 50-something Kate Blanchett and herself, Zadie Smith, who I guess is now 50 or so, um, uh, Gen X, and then the 20-somethings, Gen Z. Mm-hmm. And then Gen Y is millennial. God, the millennials are heading into middle age now. Jeez. <laughs> um, so, and so, like we said before about the Pablos, and I gave that story about the young guy saying what he felt about Bach and uh, Tar by Kate, played by Kate Blanchett said, you know, that's absurd. And then uh, Zadie Smith goes on about this whole phenomenon. And, and eventually I think in Tar, Kate Blanchett gets canceled because of some scandal in her life, some mm-hmm. sex scandal or some, I wouldn't say sex scandal, but something she she didn't take seriously that the person she was with did and it became, you know, a relationship and it became a social media phenomenon that caused her a lot of trouble. And so Zadie Smith talks about the generational views of um, these situations. And she says, you know, Gen X looks at um, people as like we said, we were talking before their opinion separate from themselves. Like their opinion is the thing to engage with and to analyze and discuss, but it's not necessarily a representation of a self. Mm-hmm. And Zadie Smith says that Gen X, being the online generation, opinions and identity are completely the same thing. It's like when you're online, you put forward like, I believe X, Y, and Z, you can be attacked or criticized or gone after as your personhood because that opinion is you. Mm. And so she says something about Gen X being more like aesthetic and that the object of art is the thing to be discussed. And also the only criteria she says Gen X has in terms of art is, is it interesting? So a Bach who might've abused his wife, possibly, I'm not sure this is, that's, I forgot that part, but let's, for example, like you said about the Pablos um, is, is something that's part of 
the interest of discussing the art. It's not a dis- it's not an automatic dismissal that, that because he might have done this, this, and this, but his incredible art was also produced. It's part of the pot of is it interesting? Whereas mm-hmm. a Gen X, uh, a Gen Zer would say, as this character in the movie does, this twenty something says, "No, I, I'm rejecting him completely because I can't look past the fact that he was a bad guy." Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting. It's interesting because what really got me, and you know, as all right reading can be personally, is she, I was like resisting this and also saying, why is Zadie Smith so like slavish in her devotion to these labels of generations when I'm not sure I even believe them? There's marketing ploys. Um, she said something um, where Gen uh, X, which I can push myself into, who knows, um, is prides himself on being emotionally like can engage in, in and discuss emotions, but doesn't really say they have them or or really it's not important if they have them. And she said, Zadie Smith in this article says something, Jen X um, will not subscribe to a arc of trauma. And remember a couple of months ago, I talked to this article in the, in Harper's about trauma and how that word became so prevalent and so um, present. And I remember feeling, you know, conflicted about it. Like, what is trauma? Don't we all have trauma? Like, what is there a scale of trauma? And when she said that, I realized what I had always, I, what, I sort of do that about myself. Like, I refuse to put my life or analyze my own life into an into a narrative of trauma or an arc of trauma, like what happened as a kid? How did I recover from it? Mm-hmm. And I won't do it because I feel like I didn't realize this. I didn't consciously realize this until I read this. I realized I rejected and I always thought I was just being a person and quote smarter than the mm-hmm. younger generation and that I wasn't going to subscribe to that narrative. And now when she, Zadie Smith said it, maybe I said, is this just a generational thing? And then it made me realize, oh, every generation has the language of how they discuss their experience. Mm-hmm. And can I be put into this generational thing I, where I thought it was, I always fancy when I really believe something, I am believing in a universal truth. Other people just don't know it. It brought out an arrogance in me that I didn't realize I really fully had. And so when I was like, oh, I do that. And Zadie Smith is sort of calling it. I was like, oh, maybe it's just a, it is a generational thing. And I don't know. What do you think about this whole thing? Wait, I want to clarify first. Yeah. You said the Gen X is the one that sees uh, like your personality and the person's selfhood as like two separate things. And Gen Z is the one that sees it as all one, right? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think it's really interesting, those ideas. Um, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm wondering if she also talks about sort of the aspects of power, because thinking about that example with Tar, which I have not seen either, you know, you know, in that particular instance of Bach, it's a little bit like, well, this person is dead for like <laughs> yeah. however long, right? Um, versus R. Kelly's music being on Spotify, right? And and how do we reconcile that? Because this person is living and makes money off of us listening to that music. So for me, like I block him. I also block Kanye West, but that was because his music was way too long, but also now for other reasons too, right? And because there is a consequence of like me listening, which is money gets put into this person's pocket and I don't agree with what they have done or their point of views about the world, right? Even though I do actually like Kanye West's music. Um, mm-hmm. But that's different, I think, from a situation where it is Bach or people who have like long passed away are not profiting from you listening, right? And they're, so maybe I like, I would agree more with Kate Lynch in that one particular situation. Um, mm-hmm. So I am questioning like sort of, the the power dynamics yeah good that's a great question because zadie smith does address that and she actually i mean this the writing in this article is a little whimsical but i think mm-hmm. she's being serious at the same time because i think maybe she realizes that generational labels are sort of silly but yet they might have profound power impact she yeah. says gen z taught us that well the character you're Tar, who is very powerful, does have a relationship with a much younger person and mm-hmm. is, who has no power. And 
you know, Tar looks at it as like this thing of desire and this moment of desire and not thinking about the ramifications because she's such a great, powerful person can move on from this experience and not be scathed by it, can move on unscathed. And um, J.D. Smith says, Gen Z has taught us it's not a good idea to do this. It's not a good idea to abuse that power dynamic regardless of the extent or, or intensity of your desires, it is not a good idea. She puts it much better than I do, but, and I, I love how she sort of does give props so-called to the, um, to the younger generation. And she, she sort of goes back and forth about how they both generations can offer the other generation, a lot of, a lot of ideas and how they really ultimately have to be collaborative to get anything done. But, um, so she, yes, that is addressed, and I she points that out completely. Like um, it makes it makes an interesting movie that Tar is this egomaniac in terms of her own desires, but in life, not not a good idea. It, I mean, not even in terms of being canceled or getting caught. It's not a good idea to abuse to abuse a situation that 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 because Zadie Smith is saying now that this has been surfaced by the Gen Z and put this put put into language it isn't morally or ethically a good thing to engage in yeah i mean indulge your desires when someone is possibly looking at it far differently than you are sorry well because also it's like it's harmful to other people it's not like because there are writers who perhaps they are like self-harming they're like you know drinking a lot and other things versus um, situations where they're harming others. Like I think about the, the Pablo Neruda, but also, you know, the author Sherman Alexi, right? Yeah. Like, it's, it's really tough because that's a conversation that we have a lot within libraries, especially when we're on like book committees and talking about books, like how do we separate the author uh, author's work from them, right? Because, you know, Sherman Alexi's book was like really pivotal for like young adult literature. There are so many fans of it. And how can you like um, sort of extinguish the the meaning and relationship that people had with that literature? Or like Harry Potter is another yeah. one. Right? Yeah. That's a huge conversation. And it's really, really tough. But at the same time, like, you know, with those books, it gave them because those books were so popular, I think they had a lot of power within the industry, certainly Sherman Alexi, and he used that power to really exclude like other like Native American voices, particularly women, right? And how um, harmful that was to so many people. And I feel like when we divorce the work from the artist, sometimes it also helps like excuse that kind of behavior and other people get hurt. Um, and so I think I maybe, I don't yeah. know, it's it mean it's it's well like Woody Allen. I mean, you know, oh, he was a meaningful yeah. filmmaker my whole life. Like as a child on up, like he seeing his movies were like a ritual and a great one. And now it's you know, and then how far do you go versus legality? Even proven innocent versus someone's word about this? It's like it's messy and horrible and and, all, and I could see why people would be reluctant to share an opinion because it's like you, you can't win in some some ways unless you completely condemn but I don't see that as winning either it's like you know um it's well it's a tough one but I was going to say something else you reminded me of you're talking about oh like um <laughs> and I said this before too it just it really doesn't I mean this seriously even though it sounds silly we really should consider human nature just not good. Like we, instead of, we tend to want to believe like oh, human nature. No, I don't like that. Only because, you know, our, know let's take it. this like, just as a, a literary thing rather than a real thing. It just seems like, just hearing you list the names, um, it's like, is anyone really sort of like untouchable? Like someone somewhere might has an issue with someone in some way. I mean, certainly, someone could be like, this guy did something to me 20 years ago that uh, traumatized me. And that other, the guy could be like, I didn't mean to do anything. And it was, it was, I don't even remember it kind of thing. So it's like, everyone might have this. So it's like, almost like, instead of the shock of scandal, like having to change the Pablos, um, it's like 
just assume everybody has something horrible in their lives. And then when they do good, it's a, it's a, it feels good. It's a positive thing. It's yeah. instead of like, we should almost look at humans as being very s- sinful, very uh, to be religious actually, but like very bad. And then when we do good, it's just that much more wonderful. <laughs> to reveal because it seems like instead of this cancellation thing it's almost like elevation yeah i, I did like um we were talking about the harry potter i just reminded me that just that daniel radcliffe the actor that played yeah. harry potter i think had wrote a letter i think maybe um on behalf of the trevor project or something and i remember there was something in it that he said that was like you know definitely saying that JK Rowling is, you know, wrong in in her beliefs, but I, I believe, but basically essentially saying that that shouldn't diminish the relationship that you have with a piece of art. Like if you were able to find um like solace in these characters, right? Like that's still meaningful, right? But I think that he did a really good job of kind of walking that line of being like this art can still be meaningful to you personally, as I've experienced with lots of different books over the years, right? But that doesn't excuse what this other person's doing. And I think it was not holding up as the art itself as being this kind of like such a wonderful thing in society and culture and in, in being created that it trumps all else, right? But you can still have a kind of personal relationship that's meaningful and that is okay. Um, I, so people should read that letter. It was a very, I think, well thought out and um, empathetic response uh, for the readers of Harry Potter, who I think were really yeah. struggling with um, what J.K. Rowling was saying. But, you know, it's I don't know if it's always such a thought out situation because sometimes you emotionally switch. Yeah. And maybe you can't switch back. I mean, like this character in the movie Tar that Zadie talks about, the kid was like, I can't get into Bob. And, you know, to a Gen Xer to Tar, that comments so throwaway and horrible like what do you mean you can't get into Bach it's Bach is just like one of the masters of music and um but yet this guy this kid you know who's to say he's wrong it's like he had he read or knew about this situation he can't go back it's, it's been changed forever his relationship it's emo- art is emotional I mean yeah. it is you know I could see Harry Potter fans um switching over and saying I can't read her anymore I just can't unfortunately it's been ruined for me where others you're almost saying Harry, like Daniel Radcliffe, who probably carries a lot of weight in the Potter community, is you have to be a little more intellectual thinking through your emotions so you don't lose the connection you did have with that universe, which is so powerful, which is another way to do it. Or for me, I, it's more like, you know, I think there is a difference in a personal relationship with a piece of art versus a social, like, how society sees it and how society will prop up certain things as this is really important this is really great and like ignores um everything else right i think there's like two different things happening and i'm saying the social uh, not social sorry the personal relationship that you have with books like look i've said this very openly i read like dashiell hammett books i love raymond chandler the portrayal of women are terrible in it but i still really love those books for different reasons and how they portray these really like stoic heroes and it appeals to me especially appealed to me when i was a, a younger teen right but i'm very like my eyes are wide open to uh, problematic aspects of those books, right? Um, mm-hmm. I don't think that diminishes my personal joy of it. However, as a librarian, um, in terms of like how I would recommend those books, right? I always recommend it with the caveat, like, look, the portrayal of women is not ideal, but if you're looking for this and this and this, you can maybe find it in those books. And maybe here's some other newer detective books that are by women, by women of color, you know, by people of color that maybe do other kinds of things and just being very kind of clear about what um, this work means in the context of um, what's happening in our world now and the knowledge that we have. Well, but, you, but you're saying you still can enjoy them. I still enjoy them. Yeah. yeah. But I know, thing. like in my head, I, I know that like it's wrong, but I still have a personal connection to it because there are other things in the book that really do appeal to me. Um, I mean, it also is... Enjoyment is not as... Like it's not a hundred percent. Like when I was right. before, I think I was really cognizant of a lot of those issues, right? Right. I mean, there is a pleasure as you get older, certainly, is to look at art and 
and try to understand it so-called of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I find that interesting. I mean, that's sort of why I like, like watching the seventies movie. We t- I talked about house with laughing windows is that I, I'm always curious, like, Oh, what, what were they thinking about presentation of gender, of, of social relationships in the seventies in Italy? Like what, that to me is, is so curious, especially since the seventies also were in time in a, in a very serious way, filmmaker wise, so much more extreme than we would do now. Really? Interestingly enough. Mm. Yeah. The seventies was like a blowing apart of a lot of the fifties, early sixties mores that were very repressive. Mm. And the late sixties, which was the revolutionary period in, in history, especially in this country in terms of civil rights, like incredible change, social upheaval. The seventies were a little bit, all bets are off. And like, that's why, they went, like I said at the top of this, they went places that as a kid shocked me, but intrigued me. It's mm-hmm. shocking because it went out of the genre um, expectations of earlier Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And nowadays we're just making Avatar 2. Well, that's the thing about, oh, let's not even get into that, about movie going and what movies are. Yeah. I think I'm going to see Babylon, though. Um, okay. I haven't. I have not seen any of the avatars. <laughs> I don't think I need to, right? Mm-mm. No, I didn't. I haven't. Uh, yeah. Well, there's only two, right? I know, but aren't they like three hours a piece? I don't know how. Long yeah. <laughs> I'm just like that's six hours of my life. I'll never get back. I don't think I should watch this. Well, they, you could love it though. You never know. <laughs> but emotional, you know, you make a choice. You know, you're emotionally like, hey. I mean, part of me is so tempted because it seems like it has such an impact on our culture yeah. in some ways. And I'm out of curiosity, but then I think about all those movies I've watched because of the impact on our culture and I didn't like, and I felt like my time was wasted. So maybe not. Yeah. But I did see Glass Onion. I enjoyed that. So, oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Glass onion. The murder mystery is back, I think. So that's nice. Well, that's good. I mean, I had a related to this. I had that article, but we can we can talk about your your books um, about the New York Post that said Gen Z had cancels certain emojis and oh, the whole article. Which emojis? Well, Gen Z. It was is this article in the New York Post about how Gen Z considers certain emojis inappropriate and hostile and not right. And then of course the boomers, they also during this article were like, what, what? And the whole thing is, which you could say is another thing about generational labels. It's like basically the article was about dividing the generation. And and to me, and also this brings up the whole issue or issue of what is news and what is truth in news, which I'm sure we've all thought about because the whole article was basically uh, taken from a Reddit string. Mm-hmm. Basically, you people like you and me talking about stuff, but then now by putting it in the New York Post, whatever you think of the New York Post, and mm-hmm. making it an article, and it suddenly becomes news when you're realizing it's just people talking. Because news now is, is culled from social media, and social media is us. So we're like we're all part of the media in a weird way, mm-hmm. a real way. Like the, and we, there's so much content that's needed because of the cycles of news and like you need something new, new, new and clickbait and all that stuff that it's like this article was written in November and it's probably a nothing thing now. But yet when I read it first, it sort of like made me like, what? But when they were saying like the thumbs up emoji to young people is sarcastic and rude and a put down. Oh, yeah, like, I use that so much. Oh my God. And it said, well, that means you're old. And then the boomers <laughs> like thumbs up meant like good job and like uh-huh. I hear you and I'm gonna and I'm gonna do what you said. And, uh-huh. and they were like, it's a little bit um, you know, uh and then they were even saying that these people on Reddit or the young people on Reddit were like, you know, you don't have to give an emoji sometimes you can actually just say it. Yeah, you, you don't have to, which I was like, huh? And then there was a list of like the official list of canceled emojis, thumbs up, red heart. Which it should be, which the Gen Zers mm. for like intimate personal relationships, not like yes. like I, I did, you did a great presentation. Heart, I I so red heart I think <laughs> is more romancy. So sometimes when I heart things, we have like a G chat whatever for work. Um, I use try to do different color hearts. 
but not a black heart. Maybe I should do a black heart. That seems more threatening. So yeah, and some some others too. But like emojis, what is the quote? Then they they talk to a lifestyle and etiquette expert. God knows what she's about, like an Instagram influencer. And she says, emojis can be interpreted as disrespectful. It can differ from generation to generation across the board. People want to know they've been heard and emojis do not convey that for everybody. Hmm. Really a non-story in a way. It's like there was a, you know, a Reddit. Thing is about social media is that you can find anything everywhere at all times. It's like another movie everywhere, everything, everything everywhere at, at all cool. moments because, and you could find a story somewhere that's, this is my point. Is this a real story or is it just a momentary blip of nonsense that someone presented a story except for my generation and believe me nothing's different really tabloidism sensationalism creating stories out of nothing is not new it was around forever but it felt like if there was an article written about it there was only the limited amount of platforms that it's it was going to be a sensationalist thing or it was going to be something real but now it just seems like there's a giant pot of articles and write-ups and lists and and yeah. stuff that it's just too much. And, you know, you read this article and it seems like it's a thing. And then you go out into the world, IRL, mm-hmm. and it's not. Like you just said, like, I didn't even hear about this. So it's like, is it a th- It's like making up well, a thing. Well, it's also the news. want to be trying post is, is it news or is it infotainment? Because <laughs> I right. think it's like two very separate things. But um, I was going to say about the emoji, I think it's just, it's interesting hearing those perspectives. I don't think it's news in the sense of like, this is a definite thing that's happening. It is interesting to hear those ideas about like what works and doesn't work for emojis. Because I think about that too. Like I use this, the skull emoji a lot. Do you know that one? Yeah. I think it's funny because like the skull emoji by itself, I think it's hilarious and says a lot of different things when, you know, something wacky is kind of happening. You do the skull emoji, but if you do the skull with the crossbones, it's like a completely different feeling to it. That's like very threatening, like dangerous (laughs) versus the skull without the cross. I don't know, but there's so much in the, like the visual aspects of emojis. What would be helpful if they, instead of talking about like what emojis are canceled and whatnot, if they would just give us a list of emojis that some people have because they have newer phones and some people don't have because they have older phones like me because I get things and I'm like, uh, I can't see it because my phone is too old. That would actually uh, be cool. But, all right, uh, whatever. I'm exhausted by this. Okay. So do you want to, do you want to go through? Yeah, I can go through some, uh, I mean, I didn't go through like my entire list of why I read last year. I read 500 books. Um, so I was only going to call out a few books that I just remembered as, um, I don't think I've like talked about them, but just really enjoyed in various ways. Um, some, did I tell you about the High Sierra, a love story by Kim Stanley Robinson? No. Kim, Kim Stanley Robinson, from what I know, I have not read any of his other books, um, is I think a really well-known like sci-fi writer. And the High Sierra is this book, it's, beautiful if you were to like purchase this book it's a lovely book lovely paper full color images and what I thought this book was gonna be was a book about um like nature and its ecosystems and really kind of like the science behind climate change and other things no the book is exactly what the title says which is Kim Stanley Robinson gets high with his friends and climbs the Sierra and that's the entire oh oh dear and I love it. Um, so that's a that's an interesting kind of memoir-ish type of book. Uh, if people are interested in like nature, hiking, and getting high, that's the book for you. Wow. Okay. Uh, I just I just love the sort of the subversion of my expectations. I'm sure if I had read the publisher um, uh, profile on it, I would have known that. But I was just like, oh, so he means literally high in the Sierra. <laughs> okay, great. Um, another book that I read that I really also, uh, actually, I think this was maybe one of my favorite journalistic nonfiction books is His Name is George Floyd, One Man's Life in the Struggle for Racial Justice by Robert Samuels and Toulouse Olerunipa. Um, they, are, they are Washington Post reporters. And so they wrote this, I think it's beautifully done. Did you read She Said's? No, the, it also the movie came out. 
The movie came out. Yeah. yeah. I would put this like on par with that book um, and similar in a lot of ways. And also there's this young adult book called From a Whisper to a Rallying Cry, which was about the um, killing of Vincent Chen and the Asian American movement that is spawned. And that one was like directed for young adult audiences. This one is for adults and uh, is not the same as she said, but basically follows this crime and then the movement afterwards. The reason why I think it's really great is like, look, this is um, a, a really tough topic, but the authors write about it in a very like sensitive and um, careful way that's um, full of um, a lot of insights into George Floyd's life. I really appreciate that they opened the book on his last words and his last words were um, saying, like, I love you to all of these, but like his family and his friends and stuff, right? Which is like really tough to read, but I think there is this kind of sense of love throughout the, the love that George Floyd had for his friends and his family. And also towards the end of the book, when they start talking about the Black Lives Matter movements and um, uh, and Floyd's family and the love that his family had for him. So I thought it was really well done. The pacing was very well done and carefully done to nothing about it felt like exploitation. Um, so I if if anybody has read She Said and like love that book. This book is another kind of must read book as well. Um, another book that I thought was really kind of fascinating. And I don't know if you would like, do, do you like Otessa Moshfeg? I have not read her, but I've been okay. recommending her so often. This is, this is not by the same author, but you know, Otessa, Otessa Moshfegs, if I'm pronouncing all of these names correctly, this book, My Year of Rest and Relaxation, the basic premise of that book is um, a young woman who essentially um, is doing all of this, like, weird stuff to get these prescriptions to take these pills so she can just sleep for a year, right? Like that's like her ultimate goal. And I think it does say um, a lot about, I don't know, I want to say millennials or whatever our generation is uh, or the generation of people where it, there's this kind of want for like escapism. In the book that I read called One's Company by Ashley Hudson, there is um, a, a woman who gets caught in a very traumatic robbery, right? Um, she experiences that. She witnesses the death of her, some of her coworkers who are kind of like her chosen maid family, um, then wins the lottery. And with that money, decides that what she's going to do is build in a, a very like far off place with no one around the set of Three's Company. <laughs> and <laughs> Frank, your face right now. What? And um, decided to abandon everybody and live through the lives of each of those characters in it. I know you're just like shaking your Wait, head. How old is this author? I don't know. I don't know how old the author is. It it's is certainly so not my age because I would not want to live in that scenario. It is so Go like on. the premise is so odd. But it just reminds me of Moshfeg's book. I mean, even though it's completely uh, different, but this idea of just wanting to escape because yeah. you cannot face the trauma of the things that are happening in your lives. And I think right. that is something that's much more common now, maybe post-pandemic in our current <laughs> world. Um, and I think there is that thing about like, look, I binge watched all of those shows during the holidays, right? And our, our like desire to binge watch and watch TV, is that a form of escapism? And like, does that keep us, numb us to sort of the, the problems and traumas that like we're dealing with? And so I think it raises a lot of interesting questions and is still a very um, interesting and kind of entertaining story. Um, I sort of love that actually. Yeah. It's I think like my, my original reaction, which is half gag. It's sort of a, a very powerful way to put it, actually. Yeah, I mean, when I read the synopsis, the print, I was just like, what is going on here? But when you actually read it, I'm like, oh, wow, this is a little bit more real than I was expecting it to be, right? Um, and then just very quickly, because I want to take too much time, but the, the Haunting of Haji Hotek. Hotak and Other Stories by Jamil Jan Kochai was a really great short story collection. You're just hilarious. Like you choose all these books with names you're, you're finding hard to pronounce. <laughs> just so cute. Anyway, go ahead. Well, usually, I'll be honest. Usually what I do is I will um, look up names prior. 
to try to get the pronunciations. And sometimes I can find things, and sometimes I, I couldn't. But I think today I just was like last minute decide. I'm just going to do kind of a last minute roundup or whatever. You're on uh, Texas time. <laughs> <laughs> last minute roundup. <laughs> Texas time. All right. Look, I lassoed some books. I corralled some books together. <laughs> Uh, uh. <laughs> um, but anyways, I, I'm not a huge uh, short stories reader, um, but I thought this one was really powerfully done, especially one called Return to Cinder, which is a, a couple who uh, starts getting sense because they like move to, I think, uh, Cabal and their child disappears and then they start getting mailed pieces of their kids body but it's like there's some kind of maybe magical realism aspects to it too it's very interesting and um i think it's a really powerful book of short stories and then very quickly last one was um just a, a comic book ducks two years in the oil sands by kate uh, beaton uh have you read any of her books she or not books she used to do um a series of comic strips on her websites and mm -hmm. a lot of them were centered on like weathering heights um mm -hmm. a lot of the old authors and they kind of like poked fun at a lot of it and that's how i know her name just through that kind of humor aspect but mm -hmm. this book is not a humorous book in fact it talks about um a couple of years where she was working in a very very male dominated field and sort of the sexism the traumas that she experienced and being one of the one of like a handful of women and having to deal with that and the effects of it. And it's, it's really like interesting and, and really powerful reading. Um, uh, there is like sexual assault in this. So just to kind of warn people um, if people don't want to read that, but yeah. So those were some of my top reads for. Wow. You're a better man than I am. Better. Queen librarian. Better woman. What? <laughs> I said, oh. better woman than you are. I was joking about the, the phrase, better man than I am. When you said queen, I was like, and I was like, queen. Aspect, why not king? So I don't know. I'm just a ball of conflict. I know. You're like, a uh, woman. And then I'm like, queen. You're like, a uh, king. <laughs> woman king. There you go. Yes, there you go. Well, thanks. I, I just wanted to talk a little bit. It's, but I did read, obviously, the article. I love Zadie Smith. I would definitely recommend her books. Mm -hmm. And certainly her nonfiction pieces, which mm -hmm. she does have collections as well, and um, of her journalism and nonfiction. Okay. Goodbye. Well, that was it. <laughs> Goodbye forever. No. Um, yeah, it should be, right? What do you want? What do you want from me? When I, I, will, I, I, want, another, card, I want another... Someone to read her. Two things. One, I want another clue about your 800-page book oh. <laughs> to get me guessing. And two, I found a, a set of tarot cards online that are pasta-based tarot cards. <laughs> okay. And I just thought it was really fascinating. The six of too silly or? And supposedly, I think it's uh, created by a queer Italian-American or kind of has that kind of like, I'm just mm. like, that's kind of cool. I don't know. Maybe I'll get it. Maybe I won't. We'll see. Um, well, we should get, like, the producer has suggested we get a, someone to actually read our tarot mm -hmm. card. But maybe. Um, a clue? Well, actually, the title um, is a question. Oh, it's a question. Okay. The title of the book is a question. Is there that's, a question mark in the title? Yes. Otherwise, that's what makes it a question. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I thought maybe it was an implied question. She's like, I'm on Texas time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on Texas time. Well, <laughs> um, Texas time. That's all I'll say. <laughs> it's not going to be a big movie. I'm on Southern time, yes. Southern time. Yes. Well, it was a delight. Oh, it was a delight, my darling. And so two weeks from now, we'll talk. We'll talk Are again. We Super book huh? or are we reading the same book I, can we just keep going mm. like we are without any imposition Forever. <laughs> so i can f finish this 800 page victorian novel not i don't know i just just back off kids <laughs> we'll we'll read a we'll have a communal read soon yeah I think all right good. do you mind if i no that's fine because i have to read like 18 books for like a 
discussion thing in two weeks. So this works for me. Yeah, well. I mean, I have my discussion group too. And, you know, I never want reading to feel like work. And it never does. Um, no. Well, I mean, commit, when you're on a committee, it certainly can. But yeah, yeah. Because of your impulse to be fair and read everything. and But... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm making a lot of the length of this book, which is not an issue. I'm just, right now, I can't even think. I want to think a little bit about before we decide a book to read together. So let's think about that. Maybe the next time we can announce that. Yeah, I think that's That's a good idea. Let's do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, perfect. All right. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I have to go back to watching C-SPAN now. Goodbye. Really? for the house vote because they're voting oh. the speaker and it's just the okay. same thing over and over again. It's hilarious. So I had to go back to watching it. Enjoy it, baby. <laughs> um, thank you. Thanks to everybody. Thanks for listening to The Librarian is In, a podcast by the New York Public Library. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, or send us an email at podcasts at nypl.org. For more information about the New York Public Library, please visit nypl.org. We are produced by Christine Farrell. Your hosts are Frank Hilarious and Crystal Chen.